we have to see the medieval Islamic world as fairly meritocratic and that you could sort of move into the upper echelons through learning, which is not entirely dissimilar to, say, the Roman Empire, where if you sort of learnt Greek and Latin and you could function in an educated environment, you could really become quite prominent. You find a similar situation in the classical Islamic world in that if you learn Arabic, and by that I don't mean that you can chat in Arabic, but you've acquired high literary Arabic, what we call fusha. But if you have fusha, you can argue sort of any point. And, and the rulers of this period seem to have been quite confident. They weren't restrictive in terms of the subject matter. So, you know, you could have a debate about Christianity and Islam, as long as both people were participating in a very erudite, high form of Arabic. But also, you know, that the fact that Arabic is this common language means that information can be shared very widely as well. Welcome to the second episode of The C1 Project, a series exploring the work of the orchestra created by Yun Balke. This podcast series is a companion piece to their third studio album, Hafla, released in April 2022. In the first part of this history episode, we learnt about why the Muslim-ruled area of the Iberian Peninsula, from 711 until 1492, inspired the orchestra, and what makes the story of Al-Andalus such a captivating one. In this second part, we'll hear more about the life and culture of Al-Andalus. We'll find out why this is sometimes known as a golden age, as well as what we know of its day-to-day -day reality. We'll hear again from Professor Amira Benison and Dr. Jose Cristobal Carvajal Lopez. When we talk of culture, though, we're mainly talking about a culture of the elite. This is high culture. We're only scratching the surface of the deeper culture that characterized a civilization for centuries. We're talking here of art and science rather than farming and cooking. Some of these practices predated Al Andalus, and many of them survived it. In any case, the world of Al-Andalus was not somehow created afresh because of conquest. Jose explains. When we're looking at Islamic civilizations, we are not looking at something that was imposed from outside. It was something that was as much developed by the people that were living in that region as influenced by people from outside. So there's a real exchange of cultural forms there. So some people arrive and bring new ideas about how to do things, and we can be talking about poetry, about language, about literature, but we can also talk about things as simple as pottery production or irrigation or how you prepare your field for cultivation, etc. So we are seeing this exchange of cultural ideas at a lot of different levels. That doesn't mean that it was always peaceful, of, of course. There will be a lot of conflict, but there is this incredibly productive and, and creative process that basically created a new culture. So Al-Andalus is part of the Islamic world, but is not an homogeneous part of the Islamic world. This encouragement and celebration of the arts and science aren't exclusively confined to Al-Andalus. They reflect a broader set of practices in the Islamic world. 
culture and science were very much promoted by the ruling elite. And I would say this is not unique to the Iberian Peninsula. There's a kind of a bit of a trope that because that was Europe, somehow Islam in the Iberian Peninsula was particularly tolerant, particularly harmonious, particularly culturally advanced. This is really not true. Exactly the same thing had happened in Baghdad in Iraq. So early Islamic political culture actually fostered investment in science. The various monarchs who ruled saw it as a worthwhile thing to put money, resource and time into the promotion of literature, learning and sort of architecture and the other arts more generally. So they did it very freely and the members of the elite around them, the court elite, wealthy individuals in the cities of the Iberian Peninsula or other places, then followed their lead and put their money into these kind of developments. So we're talking about prosperous societies with a surplus of income, with people who can invest in material culture of one kind or another, and who saw that as a valuable thing to do. One thing I find really quite interesting is if you look at Baghdad and Cordoba or Cairo at certain points, you will see that it was often people of non-Arab background who didn't have sort of, if you like, aristocratic status, who were particularly keen on the promotion of knowledge and using knowledge and science and learning as a vehicle for upward social mobility. So the Persians were very prominent in the Islamic East, but a number of the individuals who sort of stimulated learning in Cordoba, which really began in the mid-9th century with Abdurrahman II. Many of these individuals were of North African or Berber ancestry. And they sort of consolidate their position at court through their promotion of learning and knowledge and science. It's been described in Baghdad as a research culture. And I think that's quite a good way of putting it, that there is a desire among people to experiment. An example of this is from the Berber Andalusian polymath, Abbas ibn Furnas. Born in the 9th century AD, he did everything. He was an inventor, astronomer, physician, chemist, engineer, musician and poet. And one day he was even found jumping off the roof of Abdurrahman II's villa, having made fake wings just to try and understand aerodynamics and how flight works. He's just experimenting. He's in that empirical world. Well, let's see what happens if I construct this machine. Does it work? Does it not work? So it's sort of this process of experimentation and rulers supporting that and encouraging it and putting sort of money into it. But they're also very interested in the literary arts and Arabic poetry, other forms of writing. And the rulers in the Iberian Peninsula, the Umayyads at this period, were very, very keen to get materials from the East. Abbas ibn Firnas and his colleague, another Abbas, in fact, both of whom were North African in origin, are both said to have possibly gone to the Islamic East to collect books on all kinds of things, including Arabic grammar and all sorts of other things, science, learning of various different kinds. So there's a real focus on this 
building up a knowledge base. And, and Cordoba was famous in this period for its libraries as well. During the Umayyad period, so we're talking about from the 750s up to the 1030s, Cordoba was the capital. And it probably had a fair array of libraries, but that's not to say that individual governors or prominent individuals in other towns weren't building up their own library collections as well. Uh, to have a library was another mark of an erudite person. Libraries and your access to them said a lot about how important you were in Al-Andalus. They contained a vast array of writings on all sorts of topics, especially poetry and the works of the ancient world, preserved in and enriched by translation. We'll delve more into poetry and why Siwan use it in their music in the next episode. But how was it that libraries could flourish in Al-Andalus? The medieval Islamic world really took to paper. It really took to using paper for writing in place of parchment or papyrus. That meant there was a much cheaper, readier supply of material to write on. That meant that book culture exploded. It was a technological revolution. It was you know, akin to the introduction of print capitalism or the internet. You know, It was one of these big moments where a new technology led to really quite dramatic changes where it was still quite expensive to make a book, but it was considerably cheaper than it had been. And you have whole hordes of copyists working in all Islamic cities, copying materials, selling them on, enabling people to create libraries, enabling other people to read those books. So you get much wider circulation of all this information. There was a very important translation movement of Greek material into Arabic in Baghdad, but that material then traveled around the Islamic world because everybody could access it who had a command of literary Arabic. So then it turns up in Cordoba in time as well. And there was a certain amount of translation from Latin sources in the peninsula into Arabic. So everybody has a sort of a shared body of knowledge, which they can then use. And rulers seem to have seen it as the mark of a good Muslim ruler to really put attention into a whole range of different pursuits. Some of the most well-known are sort of medicine, major advances in medicine and pharmacology across the Islamic world. Astronomy and astrology, translations of Ptolemy, which were then built on. And I think one of the big secrets of the translation movement and, and the development of Arab Islamic knowledge is that it wasn't, it wasn't just a question of channeling Greek information conveniently through the Middle East back onto Latin Christendom. Translation movement is a misnomer to a certain extent because it's like any researcher today, perhaps reading a tract in another language or a scientific paper in another language, but then interrogating that material and building their own knowledge base on it. So the Arabic Aristotle is not the same as the Greek Aristotle, if you see what I mean. And any Greek philosophical or mathematical or medical work that was translated then had many additional layers built on it 
by people working in Arabic, whatever their ethnic background, whether they were Persian, Arab, North African, Iberian, and so on. What did the world of Al-Andalus actually look like? What kind of a place hosted so much sharing of knowledge and learning? One thing Amira is particularly interested in is urbanism, and she paints a vivid picture. So when you look at the 10th century and the construction outside Cordoba of a new royal city called Madinat zahra it's really interesting to see that the level of sophistication in building that was achieved during this period and maintained afterwards, it's not just Cordoba and just the Umayyads that are able to do these things. It, you know, it becomes established, <laughs> established knowledge and many other regimes are excellent builders uh, subsequently. And it's not just the glamour of an individual building that I'm talking about, but urban planning as a whole. I mean, one of the things that visitors from northern European countries tended to notice if they went to Cordoba was the great size of the city and amazing things like running water and street lighting, which at the time were very, very unusual. And Cordoba was massive in comparison to London or Paris at that time and considerably cleaner. Street lighting, running water. I was so struck by this. It just didn't slot into my preconceived notion of medieval life. How exactly did that work? These were often through sort of networks of pipes, often underground. Not every house would have had water, but there were systems for providing water to at least fountains or wells in each locality. Richer people would have had water coming right to their houses and there were complementary systems for delivery of fresh water and removal of wastewater, which was... So no open sewers like in some northern European cities at the time. So in comparison to some places, this wasn't a particularly grim time. And I think it just depends on your vantage point, doesn't it? I mean, some of the cities of China were very advanced and developed at this time. And a lot of the bigger cities of the Islamic world were also pretty developed. So in some cases, you would have water directly to your home. The home was also a hub for socialising. Social life tended to be home-based, but a home could be very big and it could involve a lot of guests and visitors. So as far as we you know, we, there weren't restaurants, there weren't bars. The coffee shop is something that develops in the 16th century in the Ottoman Empire. So medieval Cairo had fast food outlets, interestingly enough, but for the most part, I think if you're looking at Cordoba, you would, or other cities in the Iberian Peninsula, you need to imagine sort of people congregating in each other's homes, but those homes being quite lavish in some cases and possibly having large gardens and expansive courtyards and at least one space where you could hold what would be called a majlis. And I tend to translate the word majlis as a salon. And it can be a sort of an intellectual salon or it could be a place for fun. It could be a place for recitation of poetry. It could be a place for a meal. So a bit sort of like Roman dining, where you have a whole array of elegant and witty guests saying things and doing things as well as having their meal, usually served by people who would be servants, some of whom would be slaves. The distinctive feature of 
Islamic culture would be that these would tend to be what we would call homosocial gatherings. So it would tend to be all men or all women, although servants and slaves might be of either sex. It's these features of everyday urban life which help us understand just how integrated the society of Al-Andalus was. From my perspective, uh, one of the features of uh, the medieval Iberian Peninsula is you start to see it perhaps when you move away from religion. If you insist on putting different religious communities or different people of different ethnic background in different boxes the whole time, then it's difficult to see how much their everyday lives overlapped. And I think in a city like Cordoba, when you have everybody speaking Arabic, everybody going to the same market, I mean, one of the things to note is that the medieval Islamic world did not have ghettos. It did not ghettoize people. It did not insist that everybody of a particular religion or background had to live in a particular place. People sometimes clustered because they wanted to, but they weren't forced to live separately to each other. So they would often be using the same public facilities. They would be rubbing shoulders with each other and going backwards and forwards. And it's it's sometimes in the complaints against the way people are doing this that we see that there was a lot of harmonious interaction going on. For instance, in the late 11th century, we have a public official who was a religious scholar as well, moaning about all the Muslim women who constantly found in churches which is just an interesting insight into the daily life and the, and the fact that people presumably had friends of other religions, they might gather with them, they might simply like the space for a sit down, you know, you don't know. But there is this sort of level of normality in the interactions between communities. In a sense, that's what we all aspire to everywhere, isn't it? The ability to just mingle with people, appreciate their culture, a lot of geographers, medieval Islamic geographers would comment on people of all religions participating in religious festivals, regardless of which one they were, because it's just a party. It's like, it's great. <laughs> you know, who doesn't like a party? You know, it doesn't matter if it's Christmas or it's Eid. People wanted to enjoy these things together and partake in each other's ceremonies. One way to look at it is that overall, the experience of living under Muslim rule was pleasant enough for religious minorities to want to not automatically migrate out of those territories when they could, and to retain aspects of them when they did find themselves under Christian rule. I suppose I'm really thinking of um, Toledo and synagogues built there in Islamic style, but after the Castilians had actually taken Toledo, Jews who were still living there chose to build in the Muslim style, in a sort of nostalgic reference to living under Muslim rule. This notion of religious tolerance is a slippery concept, though. It's as much about how we see as what it is we're looking at. The idea that we hold currently that uh, Al-Andalus was uh, a peaceful civilization where, where people coexisted, actually has a very strong historical debate behind that. So it's not something that, you know, 
we just get out by looking at the sources or by looking at, at the archaeology. This is an idea that has been built in the last uh, centuries by a particular visions of, of Al-Andalus. And, uh, um, and some of them are positive and, and well-intentioned. And some of them are a little bit more obscure and darker. If there is an overarching story being told here, who is telling it and why have they constructed it as they have? Basically, what you're talking about in Spanish is usually called convivencia, which is a term that was developed by a Spanish scholar called Américo Castro. Américo Castro was a, a linguist. He had a theory based on the development of Spanish culture and Spanish language in particular, which was very much based on, on German philosophy, on the philosophy of, let's see if I can pronounce this correctly, Wilhelm Dilthi. And uh, his idea was basically that the Spanish language and, and very much the Spanish identity was created by the coexistence, harmonious coexistence of three civilizations in, in Al-Andalus, which are Christian, the Muslim and the Jewish. And that, that was a very well-intentioned point of view. And, and for the time in which Castro was speaking, which uh, we're talking about the 40s and 50s of the 20th century, was quite advanced. But as Amira explains... How we construct the history of one period can be driven by our understanding of others. On the one hand, anti-Semitism in Europe encouraged Jewish historians to look for periods where the Jewish experience had been positive and the Iberian Peninsula under Muslim rule came to figure as a kind of golden age within the Jewish European experience, a time when Jews participated fully in society, they contributed to culture, they were part of royal courts. So that's sort of one side of it. And it doesn't mean that the Jewish experience was entirely like that within the Iberian Peninsula, but it was used as a, as a contrast to late 19th century and early 20th century anti-Semitism in emerging nation states in Europe. It was also used as a point of contrast for the repressive aspects of fascism in 20th century Spain. So as a contrast to the repression of opponents, not necessarily religious opponents, but just people you disagreed with or had different views to in Spain. So Sanchez Albornoz published one of the major texts that explores this idea of convivencia, but he actually published it in Argentina as it had an implied critique of what was going on in Spain at that time. But in that book, he was to an extent drawing on the work of earlier European Orientalists who had also identified particularly the Umayyad period in the Iberian Peninsula as a bit of a golden age of culture and religious intermixing and harmony. And then that has been taken in various ways by different scholars. I mean, once you're in the academic community, I think people have now really moved away from convivencia. It was very fashionable a decade ago, but increasingly it has been critiqued as being way too simplistic and something that is rather ideologically driven and is always used as a sort of a counterpoint for some modern issue, rather than being a realistic exploration of what happened in the medieval Iberian Peninsula, which was mixed. And there were some very 
harmonious aspects to it, but there are also moments of high tension and persecution. Uh, and the everyday experience of people was very varied. Al-Andalus was in retreat for the majority of its history. From as early as 1085, Christian states started to capture one after another of the regions that had constituted the caliphate. First Toledo, then Cordoba, then the Algarve. By the 13th century, only Granada was left. When, in the reign of Ferdinand and Isabella, the Spanish Inquisition was launched, it unleashed book burning alongside forced conversions. Nothing could stand in greater contrast to the world of Al-Andalus in its heyday. By the time Granada fell in 1492 and the Reconquista was completed, the conditions that had allowed the citizens of Al-Andalus to live in a state of mutual tolerance had quite faded away. In that year, the Alhambra decree forced all Spanish Jews to convert or be expelled. In little more than a century, their Muslim neighbours were also driven out. Though an extraordinary legacy remained, it would always be within a new and very different context. Al-Andalus was no more. In this episode, you've heard the music of Siwan and voices of Professor Amira Benison, Dr. Jose Cristobal Carvajal Lopez, and me, Emily Naylor. Next time, we'll learn all about the Andalusian poetry, which enriches and informs Siwan's music, and how it formed a precious form of cultural capital in Al-Andalus. Professor Raymond Farron from the American University of Kuwait and Dr. Fitzroy Morrissey from the University of Oxford will describe the power of Andalusian verse and the dramatic love story between Ibn Zaydun and Princess Walada, two notable poets whose work features in Siwan's wonderful new album, Hafla. Thanks for listening and bye for now. Si hubieses hecho justicia al amor nuestro tan dolido, no hubieses amado a mi esclava, ni la hubieses preferido, abandonado la rama cargada de frutos por su belleza, inclinando.